Psalm 137. This is where we're going to be in our lesson this evening. Uh, Psalm 137 is kind of a notorious psalm. Uh, In fact, some of the words in this psalm are some of the harshest words you'll read anywhere in the whole Bible. In fact, uh, when I taught a seventh grade Bible before moving up here, I taught at a a local school, um, a private school, the kids in the class already knew about this psalm and on Fridays sometimes I would have like question and answer periods and this is one that they always wanted to bring up to get my thoughts on it or uh, just to, I guess just to bring it up because it's kind of a it's kind of messed up some of the things that are said in there at least it feels that way and so uh, what I thought we could do is is, is dive into that nonsense <laughs> to dive into uh, to uh, that difficulty and see how see what we can we can learn about it but before we get to that, we're going to actually read through the psalm, and one of the reasons more specifically that I chose it is because it relates really well to the psalm that we looked at this morning. The psalm this morning, we looked at Psalm 42 and 43, and those are written by an, uh, someone who was a worship leader in Israel, who is now in exile in a foreign land, and he's remembering home, and he's surrounded by enemies who are mocking him, and he describes the pain and the agony and the confusion that he's going through, yet he continually stops to remind himself to hope in God. Well, here you have a very similar setting, a very similar psalm. We have someone who was a worship leader in Israel. He's now in in exile. And this one we happen to know is Babylonian exile. The the earlier psalm, it doesn't actually say which exile it is. It might be Babylonian, but there's more uh, more ambiguity there. Here, we're told he's he's in Babylon. And he's, again, surrounded by his enemies, and they are mocking him. Only with this psalm, Instead of stopping himself three times to say, why are you in despair? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. In this psalm, what he does is when he gets to that point of despair, he turns and he asks for God to destroy his enemies in the most heinous and agonizing ways imaginable. Uh, this is what's called an imprecatory psalm. Uh, when you're reading the psalms, they, like there's different headings a lot of times that they're given, and some of them are psalms of praise, and some of them are psalms of lament. Uh, but imprecatory psalms, which are usually going to be categorized under lament, uh, but they are types of psalms where there is... Uh, there is a message of revenge or retaliation or violence against enemies. And so sometimes we're reading those and they, they get uncomfortable to read. Uh, for example, if you were to be reading through the Psalms and, and trying to, to pray the Psalms, I think it's a really healthy exercise. You know, read through them and, and pray the different words of the Psalms. Uh, sometimes what you'll notice is that a Psalm will relate very well to you. Sometimes you'll think, this doesn't relate all that well, and sometimes you'll get to some words and think, I don't feel comfortable saying that in a prayer to God. Uh, that happens to me with Psalm 137. You get to Psalm 137, and it's like, I don't, I've never felt that way, and I wouldn't feel right if I felt that way. But here's one of the important things about the Psalms, and I tried to mention it this morning. They don't mute or dull true human emotion. They are not always necessarily telling you what you should think and feel, but they are often giving you a very direct and honest look at what humans have thought and and what people uh, have felt in dire and in uncomfortable and in, in, in agonizing times. And I think that's what you're seeing right here. You're seeing the outpouring of a heart that's full of hatred in some ways uh, because of what he's been experiencing. And again, the Psalms don't mute that, and there's no reason 
to hide that from God, if that actually is what you're feeling. Uh, so there are some ways in which this psalm, in my mind, is difficult to square with what Jesus says about loving your enemies. It doesn't sound to me like he loves his enemies right now. But if you've been a human very long, you'll know that sometimes it's really, really, really hard to love your enemies. In fact, it's not just always something you can immediately do. Sometimes that's a process that takes time, and I think outpouring of our hearts and prayers to God is one of the ways you get to where you can do that. And so we'll discuss that again a little bit further as we get into Psalm 137, but we'll, we'll begin by reading the psalm. Let's look at verse 1. <clears throat> by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. So if you do remember the psalm earlier this morning, uh, you'll see a couple connections already. Uh, one of them is, uh, we sat down and wept, and he describes his weeping to begin that psalm. He's far away from home, and he's weeping, and he's remembering. Uh, the earlier psalm, uh, Psalm 42, he remembers leading in the procession, leading in the, in the temple service. Here he talks about remembering Zion. Zion is a reference to Jerusalem. And so he's in Babylon. His homeland has been destroyed and left in utter ruins. It's, uh, it's a, a rubbish heap, and he is in a foreign land surrounded by enemies, people who don't speak his language, people who mock him and his God, and he finds himself there remembering the land that he used to love, remembering what things used to be like. He's weeping as those thoughts and memories enter his mind. Verse 2, Upon the willows in the midst of it we hung our harps, for there our captors demanded of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. So here's, here's the agony that he's going through. Not only has his homeland been destroyed, not only has there been war and he's likely lost family and everything that he owns, he's been taken as a prisoner and as a slave to a foreign land. While he's there, apparently he was a musician, in Zion. He was a musician at the temple. And he says, I'm hanging up my harp. There's no, there's no worship here. There's no gladness in singing in joy here. I'm in a foreign land. Yet the captors, the people who have destroyed his home, destroyed his temple, destroyed his life, destroyed his family, they're laughing with one another. Hey, hey, sing us one of the songs of Zion. We want to hear it. You guys are victorious, right? Go ahead and sing us one of your songs. And as he hears those words, as he sees the laughter and the people mocking him and mocking his God, mocking his worship, mocking who he is and what he's done, he just bubbles over with, with rage. One of the things that I think is important to understand, and it helps us for understanding a lot of the concepts of the Old Testament that might seem a little bit different to us, is the way worship was done and uh, how location-specific worship was. So uh, one thing, you know, he's already mentioned the harp, and uh, that's a musical instrument, and we don't worship with musical instruments, but a lot of times when you're reading through the Psalms or reading the worship setting uh, uh, passages in the Old Testament, they do. Uh, one of the reasons they did that was when they were at the temple. Um, in Numbers chapter 10, there's some admonition about uh, br uh, making some silver harps, and you uh, use those over the, over the sacrifice, you blow the harps and all of that. And once the temple is built, 1 Chronicles 25 describes a certain people who were chosen uh, through the, uh, the, the prophets of God uh, who would lead in, in the singing, and they would worship with harps and uh, lyres and stringed instruments, and, and that was part of temple worship. 
However, that was not part of Israelite worship outside of the temple. That was something that was done by the priests and by the Levites. It was done by the same people who would, uh, you know, who then offer up the animal sacrifices. Like, it was all part of that family, and it was their job. You weren't supposed to get people from other tribes to come and do it. It was part of the Levitical temple service. And so, the only people who were allowed, you know, to serve at the temple were the Levites, and the only people who were allowed to offer the sacrifices were the priests, and the people who could blow the trumpets were the priests. The people who played the other stringed instruments were the Levites, and this pops up uh, repeatedly. Uh, That's that's the way that Levitical temple worship was done. In, for example, uh, Babylon, uh, when they were away from the temple, uh, you don't see them doing that type of thing. One of the things that they seem to establish during that time is what's called synagogues. And in synagogues, they would worship, they would read scripture, they would, they would sing, they would pray, but they didn't do the instruments of music or the animal sacrifices or like the priestly robes. Like the things that are associated with the temple were temple things, and the things that were with the synagogue were synagogue things. And early Christian worship, by the way, looked a whole lot more like the synagogue than it did the temple. Uh, early Christian worship, uh, you didn't have the offering of animal sacrifices, you didn't have the musical instruments. Those were things that uh, were much closer to synagogue worship. And it's kind of like they took the meal where they centered around worshiping Jesus and they read scripture and they prayed and they sang and they they went through a synagogue type of service centered around a meal. And that's what early Christian worship really looked like. Uh, and so they added the Lord's Supper to what a synagogue worship was. And they, they changed perhaps some of the ways, the, some of the order and the structure. But that's largely what synagogue worship looks like. All of that is to say, when you're away from Jerusalem, and when you're away from the temple, there are certain things that you don't do. Uh, You don't offer animal sacrifice. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 12 is very clear that there's a place where the Lord is going to choose from among the tribes for his name to dwell. And that's where you go. That's where you offer your sacrifice. That's where you worship the Lord. You don't go do that in any place you see, but at the place where the Lord chooses. So it's a really, really big deal when the temple gets destroyed and you get taken captive. That, that, that changes everything about your religious uh, uh, practices, about your, your closeness and proximity to God. Uh, you know, that's, the temple was supposed to be God's dwelling place. And, and as people came to the temple to worship, the language uses them drawing near. Like God's presence was in a unique way in the Holy of Holies. And so as people got closer to that, they were getting closer to their God. So when you destroy that, and you destroy the Ark of the Covenant, and you take these people to be captive, there's a lot of questions in their head. Is God, where is God? You know, I know, I know, I know God is above, like God is in the heavens, and God, you know, heaven is, is his throne, and the earth is his footstool, and God is omnipresent and everywhere all at once, but at the same time, it's like God uniquely seemed to dwell at that house. The glory of God was there, and now it lies in ruins, uh, is God still our God? Is God still among us? Is God still uniquely in a covenant with us? Those are the types of questions people would ask. And as you were far away, you wouldn't continue on the temple service because there's no temple. And so, for example, um, there's a question that might, in our context, not make a lot of sense, but it pops up between Jesus and the Samaritan woman in John 4, uh, or at least an argument uh, that she seems to try to, to throw out there between the Samaritans and the Jews. She tells Jesus, you Jews worship in Jerusalem, but my fathers say that this, uh, the temple here on Mount Gerizim, that's where we're supposed to worship. Um, which one is it? And you know, we would think, 
well, if you're in Samaria, worship in Samaria. If you go to the church there, you know, if you're in Jerusalem, go to the church there. If you're in uh, Texas, go to the church there. If you're in New York, go to a church there. Like, there's not one place where you worship. If someone came and destroyed our building, we could still worship God with faithfulness and love and praise. You know, that's, it wasn't, it wasn't, our worship isn't location-centric. Uh, and so that's what Jesus says to her. He says, you know, in essence, God is spirit. Know that they that worship him, worship him in spirit and in truth. That's what seems to matter a lot more than any particular location. The time's coming where it's not going to matter whether you're in Mount Gerizim or in Jerusalem. Uh, and so all of that is to say there's something about the Old Testament there, where there's temple worship that is location specific. And if you find yourself far away from that, the worship doesn't continue as it does. So when he's in Babylon, he hangs up his harp. They demand songs. They mock him, and he's unwilling to play them. You look at verse 4, and he asks the question. This is the question that I think uh, that makes sense if, if you kind of understand what we were just talking about. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget her skill, and may my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. The idea is if he's away from Jerusalem, if he's in exile, a lot of things come to an end. And one of those is the, his right hand playing, you know, with skillfully playing on the harp. He hung up the harp. His tongue is now clinging to the roof of his mouth. His right hand is forgetting its skill. That's all part of exile. And it's miserable because he has lost his home. He's lost his family. And it seems as though he's lost his God. But He's not going to lose his God. This is where the other psalmist in Psalm 42 and 43 says, wait, why are you in despair, O my soul? Hope in God. Here, he's not really going to say that, but he is going to call out to God. Instead of calling out to God to be a, an ever-present help in the times of struggle that he's going through, he's going to call out to God to destroy those enemies who have destroyed his life. This is where he's going, the, the imprecatory part of the psalm, where he's going to ask God to unleash God's wrath and fury on those who have unleashed wrath and fury on him. So when you get to verses seven through nine, we'll read these together and then, uh, and then talk about them for just a second. Remember, O Jerusalem, against the sons of Edom, the days of Jerusalem who said, raise it, raise it to its very foundation. O daughter of Babylon, you devastated one. How blessed will be the one who repays you with the recompense with which you have repaid us. And blessed will be the one who seizes and dashes your little ones against the rock. And the psalm ends on that note. That's one of the darkest notes you'll ever read a psalm end on. Uh, he calls out two different nations, Babylon and Edom. Um, it seems that when Babylon was coming in to destroy Jerusalem, Edom was chanting and cheering. You know, Edom and, and Jerusalem, have, they're, they're sibling rivals. Uh, going back to Jacob and Esau, they have had a long feud with one another. And it's often, it's often led to battles between them. Uh, the book of Obadiah is, is largely about that. It's, it's a prophecy against Edom because Edom not only refused to help Jerusalem, but when people from Jerusalem tried to flee, Edom actually met them with swords. You know, they either turned them back or struck them down. So like Edom was supposed to be a brother and they they were not a brother. And he, this psalmist knows it. And so he tells the Lord to remember against them. Be against Edom. The day that they shouted to raise it, Jerusalem to the ground, or to, to lay Jerusalem in ruins, remember that against them. In Babylon, Babylon is the one who actually came into Jerusalem. 
Babylon is the one who destroyed our temple, destroyed our people, destroyed our families, destroyed our children. What he asks God to do is to bless the one who repays them to, uh, to, uh, with the recompense which with, uh, you have repaid us. Basically, Babylon's not going to stand forever. Someone's going to come in there and destroy Babylon. We know, we know that historically that's the Persians. The, the Persians ended up uh, taking over Babylon. And what he's saying is God bless those people who do that. Bless the people who caused the fall of Babylon and who do to Babylon what Babylon did to us. Babylon killed our children. Well, blessed be the one who kills their children. Babylon destroyed our city. Blessed be the one who destroys their city. And so he's calling on God to bless the acts of violence that lead to the downfall and destruction of Jerusalem. And then he ends the psalm on that note. He doesn't end it with a word of praise or of love for his enemies or any of that type of stuff. He ends it with those piercing words. So what do you do with that? Well, some of this we've already talked about. Um, On the one hand, I don't think the psalms are always written for us to think, okay, everything he's thinking is the right thing to think or is the right thing to imitate and do. They are, however, giving us a vivid depiction of what prayer looks like, whether it's praise or agony, whether your heart is filled with love or your heart is filled with hate. As followers of God, sometimes we're going to have ebbs and flows and ups and downs, and sometimes our prayers are going to sound more like this, and sometimes they'll sound more like prayers of of praise and happiness and joy. Uh, But right here, we're getting a very real vivid look at someone who is suffering immeasurably. Someone who we don't know his story, maybe his own little one died in that way. And he's saying, God, whoever does that back to them, get them. (laughs) Blessed be the one who does that. Uh, This is a psalm of someone who wants revenge. Um, And so you're seeing that there. One thing that I think, however, is very valuable about the imprecatory psalms and about these types of prayers is because in some ways it's a reminder um, in, in Romans 12, and it's not just Romans 12, it's actually repeated quite a few times, there is the idea that vengeance belongs to God and he will repay. Because of that, we as followers of God do not have to take our own revenge. In fact, we shouldn't take our own revenge. Revenge has its place, but it's not at our hands. We're actually not great at revenge. God is absolutely the best at vengeance. God is the one who revenge should be left to. If you feel hatred and attitudes of of zeal and destruction of others in your heart, don't bottle those things up. Don't let them eat you away from the inside, but plead them to God as the one who owns vengeance. Vengeance belongs to him, and he's the one who can act it out perfectly. So one of the reasons prayers like this are valuable is because it takes revenge and vengeance from us, and it puts it at the feet of God and says, God, I want you to be the one who acts out in vengeance now. I want you to be the one. I'm trusting you with my revenge. And one reason that that's helpful is, well, if we trust God, and if we trust that he's the ultimate perfect judge, then we don't have to take our own revenge. We can be people of peace, even when we're feeling feelings like this. Even when we might hate our enemies, we can try to move beyond that and trust that God will do the right kind of judging. If vengeance needs to be met out, we can trust that God will meet vengeance out, and we can continue to be people of peace. Uh, So on the one hand, it shifts the vengeance and hatred that might enter into your life 
and you hand that over to God, and you trust that he will do a better job with that than you ever could, and you can live a life of peace and love, even for your enemies, trusting that God is the one who will be the just and right judge. There is a day of judgment coming, and people who do things like what Babylon did will be punished for that. You can trust in the justice of God to, yes, uh, be good to those who are in need, and to, to God's justice is, on the one hand, very positive, but also God's justice sees the sin and the wickedness of this world, and he will not have it. He won't let people destroy his good world forever. Justice will be met out. And so God hears prayers like this. God accepts hearing prayers like this. And as you pray these types of prayers, you can then move on from them, trusting that you have given God the turmoil of your heart. So on the one hand, like I said, on the other hand, I guess imprecatory psalms are helpful because even though they sound wrathful, they're actually an, a very important part of peace. They're an important part of moving on from the wrath and moving towards a place of peace. So again, don't hide those feelings from God. Lay them out to God and trust that God is the one who can handle these problems, that God is the one who can handle these types of things. Now, Psalm 137 is kind of dark. Uh, he's weeping, he's crying, his homeland is destroyed, he's mocked, he's not going to worship, and he's pleading on God to destroy his enemies in the worst ways possible, and then it ends. Right? Not, a, not a happy psalm. But one thing that's important to note and I was actually, I was, I was talking with uh, David Dudley about this earlier after the sermon this morning, is sometimes I think there's a lot of strategy in the way that the Psalms are ordered. Uh, there, there's, a, there's an intentionality to the structure of the Psalms. Uh, and so as you're reading through, you know, one thing we, we've talked about, I think it was in a class last year, how there's actually five different books of the Psalms. Um, and even within those, there's other arrangements that pop up. There's the Psalms of Ascent, and there's the Hallel Psalms, which are Psalms of Praise, and there's, there's these different different types of psalms, and like the psalms this morning, Psalm 42 and 43, uh, you know, you, you can clearly see a connection between those two psalms. Well, one thing that's helpful to do when reading the psalms is read them in conversation with one another. So when you read one psalm, then read the next psalm and see how that one relates to, uh, parallels, or contrasts the psalm that you just read. So when you read Psalm 137, you can, you can end with a dark feeling in your stomach, right? But what's important to do, I think, is read the psalm right before it and the psalm right after it. Because you'll find that this dark psalm is sandwiched right in between psalms that help give some light to it. So like Psalm 136. Uh, if anyone has ever complained about like the newer church songs because they just repeat the same lines over and over again, I know I've heard that complaint before. I've heard some people call them 7-Eleven Psalms. You know, you see the same seven words 11 times, you know, something like that. Well, if you don't like those Psalms, you're not going to learn those songs. You're not going to like Psalm 136. Uh, psalm 136 is, uh, is about as repetitive as a Psalm as you're ever going to read. Uh, verse one, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his loving kindness is everlasting. All right, that's the theme of the psalm. That just immediately hits you a little differently than everything in Psalm 137. You know, give thanks to the Lord. He is good. His loving kindness or his steadfast love is everlasting. Uh, the steadfast love of God, there's a, there's a word there. 
a lot of our Bibles translate it differently. Mine says loving kindness. I like steadfast love a little bit better than that. I think that's the English Standard Version. Uh, some might say something like covenantal love, or some might just say love or mercy. But the idea of this word, it's a really foundational word to understanding God, is it's not just his love. It's his committed love. It's his love that sticks with you through thick and thin, no matter what. It's his love, it's his covenant love, like his love that he won't give up on and he won't abandon you without it. Uh, the book of Numbers, I think, is a really good example of this type of love because the children of Israel, they're in the wilderness and they refuse to take the promised land. They want to go back to Egypt and they get punished. And then they complain about the food, and they get punished. And then they complain about the water, and they get punished. And then they complain about virtually everything you could possibly think of. And then they engage in all sorts of sins. They engage with uh, in idolatry in the book of Numbers. They engage in, in sexual sins uh, with the women of Moab. And it's like you read through it, and almost every time you turn the page, there's a new rejection of God and a new punishment. But the fascinating thing is that even with all of the sin and even with all of the punishment, God is still their God in Numbers 1, and he's still their God at the very end of the book of Numbers. Because his love for them, even over a 40-year period of rebellion, did not depart. I think the book of Judges is going to be a very similar type of book. It's like, it's a dark book, and there's a lot of really bad things in it, but God is their God at the beginning of Judges, and he's their God at the end of Judges. God doesn't give up on his people. God's love is steadfast, and that's what the psalm is thank thankful for. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His loving kindness, it's everlasting. It doesn't go away. God loves us and loves us and loves us. And so one message may be that the author of Psalm 137 could benefit from is remembering that even as you sit by the rivers of Babylon and weep and hang up your harps, the loving kindness of God is everlasting. What this psalm then does is it walks through the story of God and his dealing with creation and then with Israel through the Exodus and then through the wilderness and then through them entering the promised land. And through that whole story, God's love for them is steadfast. Uh, and so you can just you read through verse 2. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his loving kindness is everlasting. To him who alone does great wonders, his loving kindness is everlasting. To him who made the heavens with skill, his loving kindness is everlasting. To him who spread out the earth above the waters, for his loving kindness is everlasting. To him who made the great lights, by the way, that's day four. It's like you're going through the days of creation. God's creating this world, and he's, uh, he, uh, he created the world. He put the, the land above the, the seas, which is day three. He made the great lights, that's day four. And then he describes in verse eight, the sun to rule the day, for his loving kindness is everlasting. The moon and the stars to rule by night, for his loving kindness is everlasting. As you look at the creation around you, whether it's day or night, you have a reminder of the loving kindness and the power and the greatness of God. That's an important message to remember, whether you're in Israel or whether you're in Babylonian captivity or whether you're in Maryville, Tennessee, having a day of fasting. Like, looking around you to see evidence and reminders of the loving kindness of our Creator God. That's what he's doing. And then he starts getting into the story of Israel. Uh, in verse 10, to him who smote the Egyptians and their firstborn, for his loving kindness is everlasting, and brought Israel out from their midst, from the loving, for his loving kindness is everlasting, with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, 
for his loving kindness is everlasting. To him who divided the Red Sea. So it has like the Passover, them leaving Egypt, them going through the Red Sea. This continues all the way, verse 16. To him who led them through the wilderness for his loving kindness is everlasting. Uh, in the wilderness, they had uh, fights with these different kings. That happens in the uh, book of Numbers. He mentions those, uh, Sihon and Og in verses 19 and 20. Then you get to verse 21, and gave their land as a heritage. That's with them entering the promised land. That's the book of Joshua, for his loving kindness is everlasting, who remembered us in our lowest state, for his loving kindness is everlasting. And he rescued us from our adversaries. Those are some important messages for the guy in Psalm 137 who's, who's surrounded by adversaries. It's like this, this God, he gave us freedom from the Egyptians. He gave us victory over the kings in, uh, in the wilderness in Numbers. He, even in our low estate, which the guy in 137 is feeling that, God remembers us. And even when we're surrounded by adversaries, he gives us freedom from them. Why? Because his loving kindness is everlasting. And so even at like the hopelessness that you read in Psalm 137, it is tempered by a reminder that leads you to it that even at those dark moments, God's loving kindness is everlasting. God's loving kindness doesn't stop once you finish Psalm 136 and get to Psalm 137. Now you look at verse 26, the final verse of the psalm. Give thanks to the God of heavens, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Now, having said that, we show you this dark valley this, this like dark period of sorrow and misery. It's like the, the depths of what human hatred can produce in those dark moments. But that's not what our God is like. Our God's loving kindness is everlasting, even in those moments. And so then you get to Psalm 138, the Psalm on the other side of it. And look at how it begins. I will give thanks with all my heart. I will sing praises to you before the gods. I will bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your loving kindness and your truth. For you have magnified your word according to your name. On the day I called, you answered me, and you made me bold with strength in my soul. Uh, even in that right there, you're having possibly someone who's in exile. Like he talks about praising him among the gods, uh, bowing toward Jerusalem. You know, those are things that you do when you're far away from Jerusalem and when you're surrounded by other gods. Uh, but he's going to bow and he's going to, verse two, give thanks to your name for your loving kindness. Well, that's the word that we just read like 26 times, two Psalms earlier. The word doesn't appear in Psalm 137, but here it is again. It's something to give thanks to God for. Verse 4, notice how this one reads well after Psalm 137. All the kings of the earth will give thanks to you, O Lord, when, you have heard the words, uh, when they have heard the words of your mouth, and they will sing for the ways of the Lord, the great, uh, for great is the glory of our God. So what does Psalm 137 want to happen to these other kings? Destruction. You know, he wants them to— What does Psalm 138 want? them to eventually sing praises to God. You know, it's like you're getting very different pictures here of what different people are experiencing at different times of their life. One person, he is surrounded by adversaries and he wants them all destroyed. The other one, he looks around and he says, one day every single tongue is going to confess the greatness of God and is going to sing praises to his name. Uh, verse six, for though the Lord is exalted, yet he regards the lowly. 
but the haughty he knows from afar. He regards the lowly, like the one in Psalm 137 who's feeling lowly at that moment. God still cares about him. Verses 7 and 8, and we'll end with this. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you will revive me. That's a message Psalm 137 needs to hear. Uh, Your hand, uh, you will stretch forth your hand against the wrath of my enemy, and your right hand will save me. I mean, that's, that's goes, that fits well with it. That's what Psalm 137 was wanting, and he's saying God can do that. God will do that. He will rescue. In verse 8, the Lord will accomplish what concerns me. Your loving kindness, O Lord, is everlasting. All right, well, we're back to that again. That's the repeated phrase from 136. He goes back to it in Psalm 138. It's on both sides of Psalm 137. It's a reminder that you not forget that quality of God, that his loving kindness is everlasting, Verse 8 ends, do not forsake the words of your hand, the works of your hands. Uh, so you read these three psalms together, and I think they can, you can see how they form a good conversation with one another. Psalm 137 on its own, it's a tough psalm to read. There are, there's value in reading it. There's value in praying it. There is, uh, there's an essential place in our lives for a psalm like that. But we should also read it in conversation with the other psalms and see different ways that they might approach these subjects or different ways people might feel or ways that you can praise God through these light and dark moments, through these highs and through these lows, through the mountains and the valleys uh, that that life throws at us. And so I love the psalms. I, I love praying the psalms. I hope today you will take some time, if you haven't already, find a psalm or two or a couple of them and maybe read through them praying them to God, or at least praying with them. Uh, I think that's one of the very purposes of them. It's a prayer book inspired, put in our Bibles, that we can use as we go to God and petition him in prayer. Jesus does that, by the way. While Jesus is on the cross, he quotes uh, Psalm 22 in verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a psalm that uh, seems to depict one of these low moments, at least at the beginning of it. But then he also quotes Psalm 31, verse 5, Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit. That's more a psalm of of trust in times of despair, saying, I commit my spirit to you, O God. Both of those comes from the lips of Jesus while on the cross. That tells me that if Jesus is going to use the psalms in the darkest moments of his life and in times of prayer, then maybe that's something we could learn to do as well. Make the language of the psalms the language of our lips and the language of our prayers. And and that is something that we can take with us day in and day out. Uh, So I hope that we're able to practice that today. If there's anyone here uh, tonight who would like the prayers of the church or would like to become a Christian, we want to give you that opportunity right now. Uh, You can come sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.